Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I am Haney. We're Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 207, recorded on September the 27th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nativeintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We seem to have misplaced Simon. It seems to happen occasionally. It does. And uh, for some unfathomable reason, he was allowed into the United States. Yeah, I don't know how he pulled that off. <laughs> Neither do I. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there's a story in here somewhere, and we're going to hear that when he's back. Um, I don't know from the top of my head what he is doing, but I do know that he is in San Diego for a uh, conference and apparently also eating exceedingly unhealthy food. Yes, as it's is the case. <laughs> as, as one does. I mean, we've all been to the U.S. and had breakfast with more calories than a decently sized four-course meal. But that's, that's how they roll, them Americans. <laughs> much better than, or much worse, I should say, than us austere Europeans who just find a piece of wood to gnaw on. But I digress. Yeah. <laughs> you just <laughs> shake your head. Um, so we essentially have a whole episode without any interference from the Simon. Um, so mm -hmm. we'll see where we can go with that. There's been yeah. so it, it's it's a bit of a slow-ish month. I mean, we're coming mm. up on Ignite, and uh, Microsoft is is playing most things fairly close to their chest. Uh, there was the um, the uh, Power Platform conference in uh, the U.S. a while back where they showed some interesting things. And I was in uh, Billund where they showed some interesting things. Technically, I don't think those are secret anymore because they were shown in a public setting, but they have not been put on the interwebs. So I'm somewhat hesitant to, to talk about the details uh, about them. Smart move. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm surprised as you are. Uh, <laughs> there has been some. Uh, there has been a September update. And there have, well, some smaller things and some larger things. Condition of formatting for data labels. Uh, kind of a no-brainer, really. I mean, re of course you should be able to, to, to do condition of formatting on in, in individual data labels. Uh, it's now being turned on. So it's not 100% done yet, but it's going to get there. It's a, it's a small thing, but it's also a huge thing for uh, usability, I think. Um, translations, one of the sore points in, in Power BI, um, essentially. Uh, it's, it's difficult to do translations, and if you did uh, composite models on Power BI datasets and an analysis services where you have um, basically a Power BI report dependent on another Power BI dataset or uh, analysis services dataset, then you were up shit creek because translations did not work, period. Now they do. Uh, that's also a, a preview uh, phenomenon. So we'll, we'll see how, how that pans out. But I think translations in general, 99% uh, of everything I do is on in English, right? Uh, I think it's sort of kind of the same for you. But at the same time, translations are important 
it is much more important than people who has English as their first language realize, I think. So there is a, a lot of, of good things to be said about having decent translation support. Uh, prophecy connector. It's a new connector to prophecy. And why is prophecy a thing? Well, we remember, I was about to say love and remember, and I'll just scratch out the love because we don't. Um, the, um, the, the MDS of, of uh, SQL Server. The, the old way of keeping track of, of master data. There is no uh, nothing to, to uh, go to on the Microsoft side of things. There have been rumors that we're going to see this in uh, Purview, but not yet. So Prophecy is the one that Microsoft recommends. Now you can connect Power BI straight to Prophecy without having to jump through a crap ton of hoops. And I think that is a good way of, of visualizing your, your master data and, and your quality data in, in a way. Cross-tenant data sharing. This one is interesting and not without some scary things. So cross-tenant data sharing means that I can share a data set with you, but I can keep the data in my tenant. And anyone who's listened to... Um, Alberto Ferrari uh, talked about composite models and the issues that you face in composite models. Where will Power BI do the calculations? Where will it run the, the, the uh, lifting, so to speak? I'm concerned if data has to physically move between your um, tenant and your, your guest tenant. I haven't looked into how this works, but I think there might be a concern, not necessarily for security, that's that's probably taken care of, but for performance, of the same reason why composite models can come back and bite you if you're not very, very careful with how your data moves between your, your different uh, computing layers. Uh, let's see. Uh, there have been some Synapse updates as well. Um, one of the things that Microsoft is talking about about a lot is, is lake databases inside of, of Spark. Another thing that people have asked for is being able to read a lake database uh, straight from um, serverless. So using serverless as a, a, um, a way into a, a lake database. And that's been turned on again as a preview. And I've seen some issues with it. Sometimes it does not quite work the way it's supposed to. But then again, that's what you get for preview stuff. So it's going to get there. And I'm hoping that we are in the future going to be able to just discard the whole idea that, well, this is a lake database or this is a serverless database or this is a dedicated pool database. doesn't matter. It's all data and I can access it through whatever tool I want, be it serverless, dedicated, Spark, uh, Visual Basic. And that's for, for um, Ben Wiseman. <laughs> <laughs> because he still likes Visual Basic or whatever tool you want. On the, I, I have one more thing, but I'm going to do that when you're you're through with your um, news, I think. So what's... It's going to be gloriously few Intune news. Yes, I'm not going to talk about Intune or endpoint management in any shape or form. <sighs> <sighs> exactly. As once we can kind of... I don't know even... <laughs> Well, anyways, what I'm, again, as Alexander said, it has been a little quiet. So what I'm, but I did find a few 
you interesting things. Why am I so lost? Well, you're far from home. <laughs> yes, I think my brain is still a bit on vacation mode, but getting back. So a few interesting things that have kind of risen in this past uh, two, three weeks or so. There is the general availability of enterprise-grade edge for Azure static web apps. That's a mouthful to say. Yeah. And and it is it's not like a separate service from Azure Static Web Apps. It's more a setting that you can enable. And what that then enables you to do is that you get, uh, for example, caching features that you're able to configure in a better way. It also combines the some of the Azure front door features into the same service so uh, you are able to do more of these uh, routing settings, etc., to the service as well. And it has, for example, DDoS protection built in. And you could even have use IPv6 connectivity if you wish to. And it has also better performance into the service than the regular uh, static web apps. And I'm interested to see, like, does this bridge the gap of, for example, previously running single page applications on Azure, you still had to do some tweaking to get the routing to work, etc. And you would have to use like a storage account and a Azure front door or something like that together to get it working. And then again, that would mean that your storage account could not be within a private network. So you would still have that public endpoint available. So I'm really looking forward to this maybe kind of uh, unraveling that issue and being able to have it just one service where you just configure the kind of where the users are interfacing your application from. Do you know, so you, you mentioned uh, DDoS protection that is mm. improved. Do you know if this has anything to do? I, I thought everything went through DDoS protection in, in Azure, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of a built-in, but then you have different yeah, tiers. Yeah, of the past services, yes. Yes. And this is not a past service? This is, I mean, like if you have a virtual machine and it has a public IP address, that would not be protected ah, yeah, yeah. by DDoS. You would have to have like separate DDoS protection in place. Uh, but this is kind of the DDoS protection that, the same DDoS protection that is in place for Azure Front Door, because this brings the oh. Front Door capabilities into the static web apps. So um, that is kind of closer to the edge rather than closer to the service, since Front Door leverages those edge locations. So that's kind of the difference there. All right. Yeah. Uh, then there is uh, two new updates to Azure Data Lake Storage that I found interesting. Uh, the first one is, I think I have mentioned this before when this came into preview, and this is that the immutable storage for Azure Data Lake Storage is now generally available. That means that you could uh, set your storage account, even if it's an Azure Data Lake, to be only, you know, write once. You cannot, after you have written your data there, you cannot anymore modify it. That's thus, it is called immutable storage. And the other aspect here is that there is now a public preview of encryption scopes. And 
This is framed so that is it is on hierarchical namespace enabled storage accounts, but that is what an Azure Data Lake storage essentially is. So it again uh, is has to do with when you are using Azure Data Lake storage. And I found this uh, interesting because now you are able to use multiple encryption keys in a storage account so that you could have one uh, encryption key for one container, another uh, for another container in the storage account. And you could have that at the blob or container level. So this would, for example, make it easier for you to have different customer data in the same storage account, but actually have separate encryption keys for those so that each of your customers have their own encryption key. And this could be either a Microsoft managed encryption key, or you can bring your own own uh, key as well into Azure Key Vault and set it up from there. So this I kind of find very a very interesting topic and something that can potentially uh, help you increase security and have that um, boundary between your customers in the same storage account in a more granular way. But remi- remind me, there there is some limitation on um, setting up privileges for data lake. And uh, do is it possible to use um, Azure AD? To log in for to specific to set specific um, um, containers and specific directories, for instance, in in Data Lake. Yes, but you do need to be a little more careful with that. So, of course, you have the Azure RBAC roles for the Azure Blob storage blob data owner and contributor that you can use. But then, in addition, in uh, the Data Lake, you also have the ACLs that can you can use to really have granular access, but it is maybe a little, uh, if you haven't worked in the, for example, Linux world, it can be a little like, how does this work <laughs> type of thing. So it is a little bit of a, I think, different mindset to what there is in the other services. So it can take a little bit to get a grasp of how it works, but it's possible to have that granular access. Good stuff. Really yeah. interesting, and then I hadn't uh, hadn't seen the uh, encryption scopes, uh, but that's going to come in handy, like, yeah, come Monday. <laughs> Great, right to use. And then this next news was actually already published a little bit ago, and this has to do with the fact that the Azure managed Grafana is in general availability. I don't think I have mentioned this. But Grafana is a monitoring tool that is very widely used, especially in the Kubernetes side of things. And I think that is one of the most common tools that we use in Kubernetes projects to do the monitoring. And now it is possible, well, previously you would either have to uh, set up a Kubernetes service on VMs in Azure or so forth or somewhere else. But now you can have a Azure managed Grafana service. So you don't have to set up anything, just create the service and then you're good to go. And what Grafana enables you to do, it enables you to bring uh, logs from many different sources. And with this managed Grafana on Azure, it also brings more capabilities to how you can use this with Azure. So there's already ways that you can bring in your Azure monitor logs, for example, and uh, have visualizations of those and so forth. 
but now there's also some uh, out-of-the-box dashboards have that have been built additionally to the previous ones that have been available. So you can, for example, have a load balancing dashboard for Azure Monitor Network Insights. So if you're using different load balancing services like application gateways, front door, traffic manager, you could have uh, these ready-built views of how those are performing and if there's any issues. Are we talking essentially the same thing as, as Kusto or, or Splunk, or is this much more than that? Similar to that. So you are able to really kind of combine the logs from different sources. It is more mature like than the Azure Monitor logs side. Uh, it has been around <laughs> for a longer time. So that's it kind of explains it. And there's an interesting integration now built here is that when you do work with the Azure logs side and you do some queries with Kusto, you could then, there is a capability to pin this to Grafana. So earlier you had been pin this to your dashboard in Azure, but now you can directly pin to this to your Grafana managed service as well. So it is a very interesting setup. Uh, and we'll see kind of how, what kind of footprint it takes. And I think it is one of the go-to tools, especially in the containers world. So I think it'll, it will just make it easier to use with when you're working with AKS, for example. And now since there's also the container apps in Azure, there is also um, built-in dashboards for Azure container apps that have been brought to Rafana as well. So... Very interesting. We've, we've talked um, some about um, containers and, and Kubernetes and, and Kubernetes and other interesting <laughs> places to be. Um, yes. What's your, your thinking? Should we see if we can bring in Anthony Nocentino, um, uh, Andrew Persky, Ben Weissman, and, and you yeah. to, to have a, a discussion about Kubernetes? And, and I'd be more than happy to, to ask all the stupid questions because... I, I have a lot of them. I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> so some some kind of roundtable with people that know yeah. things and me. Cool. Uh, yes. That sounds like an interesting idea. <laughs> it is. And then I have a last item, uh, which is not like an exactly an Azure update, but there is this tool called API Management DevOps Resource Toolkit. And there is now a version 1.0.0 that came out actually a while ago already. And whenever there are these DevOps toolkits, I go a little bit like, hmm, hmm interesting to see. What will this do? <laughs> and so far, it has felt quite right <laughs> to ask that question. <laughs> and yes, so, <laughs> so with... Azure API Management, this is a tool for that specifically. And we've talked about Azure API Management and I have a bit no, of No, Haney, you haven't <laughs> talked as much as ranted about it, but yes, go on. Yes, I have a love-hate relationship with Azure API Management. Uh, it gives, gives me gray hairs occasionally. And one of the tricky aspects with API Management is how do you handle DevOps with it? Because, of course, you want to have so that when you're about to publish a new API, that that gets tested, uh, it gets approved, 
etc etc and of course you might also need to do changes in the api management service itself and that is another aspect that you also then need to handle and of course you need to think about do you have a de- separate development instance and then a separate production instance and so forth so there's many many aspects to this uh, this api management de- DevOps Resource Toolkit has been around actually for quite a long time, so it's not new. It's been around, but they have been, of course, bringing new versions of it to make it better. And this particular tool uh, is made of two parts. Uh, There is something called an extractor, and it creates an ARM template by pulling out the API definition from an API management service. So this was, would it enable you to have a dev instance from where you extract the API definitions fr- from that. And of course, I might be questioning a bit why ARM templates, but <laughs> that's just me. Like, in my opinion, let's just at least use Bicep, even though behind the scenes it creates ARM templates, but they are more human readable. So it would just make using these kinds of tools much easier. And then there is the second part of this tool, which includes a kind of this creator tool. And this can actually then uh, produce an ARM template from a YAML specification. So uh, you could have your specification in YAML format and then dumped that as an ARM template. And you can use this to handle your SOAP, REST and GraphQL APIs. And The thing is, if you go looking into the documentation of this tool that will be in our show notes, uh, you will kind of notice there's this kind of picture about CI-CD for API management. It's not exactly like a simple process because you have this API management service that you need to handle. You have the APIs themselves that you need to handle as well. So it is not a kind of the most smooth uh, experience for CI/CD for having those deployment practices in place from your development environment, your testing to your production and so forth. But it's really interesting. And if you're looking in working with API management, it is definitely something to look into. Um, you can at least get some inspiration on how to set up the DevOps practices and CI/CD, and I I think this tool uh, in the repo there is also some Azure DevOps pipeline uh, specifications in place that you can use to even have pipelines for the processes, and you can also use other tools to have the same capabilities in place. So you could use also Terraform to have your API specifications but the thing is just the complexity of the service you need to have the service level and then the apis and so forth it doesn't necessarily mean that it becomes much more simple but i personally go a little like yikes when there's arm templates in the mix because then it can be hard to figure out like uh, when things go wrong because of course if everything is right it's no problem (laughs) the arm template just gets deployed to the other service. But if something gets wrong, goes wrong, then it might be harder to figure out what has actually gone wrong. So, but something to look into. 
it's always wonderful when one says when something goes wrong, not if something <laughs> goes wrong. That that means you've worked in this industry for more than 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> um, so this might be a, a very, very dumb question. I was thinking about what you said about testing APIs. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that's going to be at least a two-step process where testing the API essentially means that you're the API will return what you're expecting it, but it has nothing mm-hmm. to do whether the API call to the backend works at all. Because that's not necessarily part of the API, that's part of the application. And then it depends on if, are, are you following my logic or? or yeah, I might have gotten a little lost here. I actually had a discussion about this over lunch because oh. we happen to be uh, sharing the office spaces here at our Tampere de- uh, Polar Squad uh, location with a company called Hidden Trail that focuses solely on testing. And we had a discussion actually about API testing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when you have an API definition, you have the API itself and then actually behind the scenes that is most likely calling some kind of backend to retrieve the data. And so we were talking about that it's actually really good to have, for example, automated testing set up for your APIs, because then when you make a change to that API, then you are able to see, and it's kind of brought to your site that, oh, wait, this is actually going to make a change. And you should at least have in place kind of a verification that the API is actually responding. That is the first step. And then you should actually also test that it returns the data in the format that you're expecting as well, which then means that it should actually fetch some data from the backend too. Because if the format changes of how it returns data, that already will be a problem for any service that is calling it, because they're probably assuming to some extent that the data comes in a specific kind of format. So if you have testing in place that verifies those two things, then when you make the change, you see the testing results, you're right away able to see that, oh, <laughs> this is going to affect somebody else as well. And it's just kind of brings the awareness, like, is this change necessary? And of course, it might be necessary, but then you know that there's at least changes that need to happen elsewhere as well. So uh, let, let's picture a completely insane setup. You have a mm-hmm. REST API mm-hmm. that in the back end does all the communication with your application through fax yes this is completely (laughs) nuts but that's my point all right all right and if someone breaks something with the fax machine the api still works in my opinion the api is fine the results are not because the fax machine does not work how how do you deal with that? Would that mean that you have a, a working API or will the API fail as an effect of the backend not performing as it should? Make sense? Well, you should have your API built in the way that it does actually return an error if it's not able to fetch True. what it needs to fetch. Or if it's not able to, for example, it might be a, you know, a endpoint where you put in data. So you should be able to get a result that reflects whether that API actually works in its entirety, not just is the endpoint available. Exactly. So 
if, if my API were to return, well, the fact that some moron just destroyed the fax machine, then the API is working as intended, even though the backend mm -hmm. is not. So that's why I, I asked about testing the API and getting getting uh, such an answer or such an error from the API would mean that the API is, is running as expected. Yeah, it is running as expected, but it's not actually working. <laughs> yes. Well, that kind of sounds like my life in a nutshell. Uh, but yes. Okay, that, that, make, that makes sense. And, and that also um, added to my, my knowledge about API management. And I'm, I'm very happy to see that you're smiling when you're saying API management, because the last time we had this discussion, you were fuming. And there are a few things in this world yes. that make Haney Ilmarinen upset. API management <laughs> is one of them. Yeah, it has managed to do it more than once. <laughs> oh, true story. All right, mm -hmm. so my final thing is a Power BI horizontal fusion. That sounds strange. <laughs> so uh, one of the, the main issues that you're facing in any client-server uh, application architecture is it's not free to send uh, traffic to and from the client, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, one of the... the, the funniest things that you can find in SQL Server when someone says, well, my SQL Server has performance issues. Well, it's because you're you're returning the entire internet to the client for everything you click on. That's generally frowned upon. And that's mm -hmm. why we try to avoid um, direct query in Power BI and try to do uh, import mode instead because direct query means that everything you click is going to mean a new uh, query down to the database layer. Now, the the Power BI, the Power BI, Power BI has <laughs> um, a number of engines, uh, the storage engine and the formula engine. And it's, it's sort of kind of the same thing there. You want to decrease the number of queries to the storage um, or, or the data layer. And if this, this can be done, then you essentially have a go faster switch. And that's what horizontal fusion is. It's a way to um, clump together a number of uh, DAX queries. And instead of sending them one by one, you're, you're sending the whole shebang down to the storage engine. And voila, you're, you're decreasing the round trip times mm. significantly. And this is essentially a go faster switch um, because you just set it up. It's, it's a preview feature, of course, um, and you just add a check mark to horizontal fusion and off to the races you go. So this is really, really cool. It's available in Power BI Premium and Premium Per User. It will be coming to Power BI Shared, uh, i.e. Power BI Pro, in the following months. Uh, it's not there yet, but it's going to get there. Very cool. I think so. Um, mm -hmm. I was in in, um, in Denmark uh, when this was delivered, and I had a chat with um, uh, Will Thompson about it, and uh, really, really interesting idea. And one of these, of course, why aren't we doing this? And oh, this is a great idea. So as always, someone had a brainwave in the team, and holy cow, they are <laughs> pretty darn smart in that team. So I want to go into the focus segment, and I, I've I've been thinking about this one for a long time, and Simon will be absolutely furious he's not here. It sucks yeah. to be him. So, sessions. How, mm -hmm. how do we come up with sessions? How are they born? And, and 
what inspires us to, to make a session? I've done a couple of sessions now, and the one that I've run <laughs> a couple. the most, a couple, yeah. And the one that I've run the most, I just did for the 19th time, uh, which is just insane. And I will be running it for the 20th and final time in uh, Belgium, um, in, mm -hmm. in data mines. I now have a cat in my face. So the manager <laughs> is it's obviously here and wants food. Um, yes. So I'm going to ask you, where, where do you get your, your session ideas from? I think my session ideas come from either something I've been struggling with or something I've seen others struggle with or topics people have asked me about or, or something like that. And often for me, it kind of fits into this um, border area between two topics like uh, data and networking or data and access control or something like that. So at least for me, it's often like I like to combine multiple areas and maybe topics that are not covered so much in the community yet. Sounds reasonable. And I, I, I used to say that I work in the dark depths between technologies. Mm. Um, because when I, I was predominantly doing uh, databases long before I started speaking, um, mm -hmm. I was one of few people who knew storage and networking mm. and databases. Uh, because most people know one or two or, or just one. Mm. Um, so that also kind of brings us to the discussion about niches. How do you find mm. your niche? And well, most of the time it's, <laughs> it's, it's in the in-between uh, technologies. Mm. So does that mean that you're not that keen on doing sessions on what's new in this release, API management or something? Actually not. No, I'm not not so interested about that, those. It's like, for me, they are like, oh, cool, there's this new feature and I can test it out. But oftentimes those are not the topics where there's like burning questions. No, quite yet. They are the topics that will have burning questions in the future. But it is not often the things that people are working with right now. So I, I want to try to address some kind of uh, problem that people might be having, some kind of area where they are like trying to find the answers, but it's hard to find them. When that brings us to a really interesting philosophical discussion, we want to solve problems and we want to talk about problems and ho hopefully solutions to problems. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, but not always. But one thing that someone told me uh, a few years ago that, took some time to wrap my head around was the fact that what we regard as everyday problems are so far out on the bleeding edge that the vast majority of people, well, they're still using SQL Server 2012. Mm. I mean, come on. So we're, we're always going to be a number of steps ahead of, of most people in the community. So how, how do you how do you figure out what is actually relevant and how do you how do you pitch this to to conferences that also tend to fall for the the issue of being very very far ahead on on the curve. I think for me what kind of uh, saves me from that is I talk about the kind of the 
basic core topics that you cannot get away from. So like networking, access control. API uh, management. I haven't actually talked about API management anywhere. So <laughs> or or now I have more about like DevOps themes and so forth. And I think those are kind of the topics that even if like the special specific issue that I might be presenting in my session is not relevant to you, you'll still get something from the session anyways, because I also try to kind of um, cover the topics that are maybe that, yes, there's information available, but it is so vast that it's, it's hard to get a grasp of. And so, yeah, I might be wrong, but I don't think I'm on the most bleeding edge so much. <laughs> um, that would be really interesting uh, to, to dive deeper in. And I'm pretty sure that Simon will, will be in agreement here that what we do and what we talk about tend to be the bleeding edge for most of our, our larger customers. Mm -hmm. Smaller shops, fine. They're, they're going to be more nimble. But larger companies, um, uh, municipalities, things like that, they're, they're infamous for being not slow on the uptake. Uh, they, they're more interested in having things be stable. They're less interested in having the coolest things and more interested in that they perform as they should. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm sure that that's an interesting and, and difficult and, and challenging um, balancing act in itself. Uh, what about keeping a session relevant? I mean, it, it takes time to write the session, right? It's not something mm -hmm. you do in, in 45 minutes and then no. you just toss it. So we want to keep it running for a while. We want to, well, some tweaks, sure. But how do, how do we keep mm -hmm. it relevant? I at least go back after every every single run I do on the session and tweak something. And sometimes it's smaller things, sometimes it's bigger things. Sometimes like there's changes in how the specific area that I'm talking about is actually implemented, so I actually have to like change the information in itself or sometimes it's more like I want to change the flow or I want to approach the topic from a different angle but yeah for me uh, that is kind of the way I keep it fresh and that's also how it keep keep it interesting for myself because like I don't want to talk the exact same thing 10 times and for me the kind of how many times I run it it often depends on like how long does it feel like the content is relevant? And also part of it is how long does it kept how long does it keep on getting picked up also by conferences? And it feels like it goes a bit in weird cycles that I don't exactly understand. I might have one session written that I don't run for a year because nobody picks it up, but then suddenly everybody starts to, hey, this is interesting now. So it's Part of it is up to me, but part of it, like, I don't exactly have control over who, which of my sessions get picked. So part of it also has to do with that. So that means, in essence, that uh, you need to have a portfolio of sessions, yes. essentially, more or yeah. less ready to go. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to ask you a contentious question, because there, there are a lot of opinions on this. 
how do you go about creating a session? Do you do the shotgun approach, i.e. write a, a, an abstract, send it to everyone and their cat, and if someone picks it up, well, then you write the session. Or do you write the session or, or most of it, then do the abstract and then send it in? Or how do you, how do, you do it? Yeah, I like risks. So <laughs> first option mostly, but I do always have like an overview or kind of the storyline of the session in my mind when I write an abstract. Otherwise, I'm unable to write an abstract if I don't have an idea of how, what are the main points, where will I start, where do I want to end. And of course, that might change after I run the session once, and then I tweak the abstract according to that and so forth. But yeah, I don't have a full session ready when I write an abstract, but I do have the uh, overarching story and the main points in my mind, because that will help me write a good abstract. That And that, that's, that's exactly how I do it. So what I've found is that I have an idea, I have a story in my head, and then I write the abstract. And that is inevitably going to tweak my storyline, which in mm -hmm. turn is going to tweak the yeah. abstract. And <laughs> it takes a few to and fro before you're, you're kind of settling on, okay, this is what I want to talk mm -hmm. about. And this is how, how the abstract works. Because I've, I'm tired of, of people doing sessions where they obviously wrote the session long after the abstract. And the abstract may or may not have a, a fleeting relationship to the actual uh, session. And that that's, nah, we, we have enough issues as it is with people not reading the abstracts. <laughs> we don't need to uh, exacerbate that issue by not writing sessions that have nothing to do with your own abstract. I'll mm -hmm. get off my soapbox now. All so right. <laughs> um, have you done any sessions outside of your your bubble? Uh, and by bubble, I mean your your data data community. Yeah, I I've done some sessions in like the machine learning AI context, and then I've done some session events that are have been more focused on like the Azure, um, rest of Azure, not the data side. So uh, those have been the two other arenas where I've been at, but nothing really in terms of like a. DevOps conference yet. And how do you how do you view that idea? I mean, coming from the data community and walking into the developer community or the the AI community and talking about something that is essentially their home turf. How how do you approach that and how does that feel? Well, well I don't exactly understand the question. I just go and speak do i don't thing. yeah i just do my thing <laughs> the thing is that like even if it is not like my core i might even be doing a session that is a little more out of my comfort zone but the thing is that i probably then have a different point of view to the topic than a lot of the people who are very deep in the topic itself so for example i've had this session on Azure machine learning and how you go from a uh, from a notebook that you have created in the graphical interface and how do you actually start using a notebook instead. And that was just something that I figure that I haven't seen any sessions on this and it can actually be a huge leap for people who don't 
do not come from a data science background. So it's kind of our unique point of view that can really bring any topic to life. Because even that view of like, how do I have I approached this could be really helpful for some people who are just getting started in the machine learning area, for example. Yeah. How about you? Well, I I had the weirdest experience uh, for a long, long, long time this this weekend. So I went um, to speak at the the Nordic Power Platform Summit, and Power BI is nominally part of the Power Platform, which is kind mm-hmm. of weird because, in my view, it has nothing to do with Power Automate, um, the uh, business applications, nothing like that, and. This was the first time in in like 20 years that I had no idea about anything there. I mean, they they, they had stickers um, that depicted your your various specialties, and I, mm-hmm. I recognized the Power BI sticker. I, I I recognized that. I have no idea what the other stickers were, and those <laughs> those were uh, business application stuff. And I just went, yeah, I don't know this. And mm-hmm. I was listening to a few sessions, and I realized I have no idea zero idea what this is and it's been so long since i could say that i have no idea um so in that respect it was kind of weird to be at that event and then i was delivering the untruthful art which is a weird session regardless of event so Mm -hmm. that was that was something else cool i think it's kind of nice to be an event where you do not know anything about anything. It can be very like mind blowing and yeah. revealing. Like, oh, it, it's wonderful to see how much exciting things there are out there that you just don't know about. And yeah, it, it's, exactly. I mean, it's Dunning Kruger in in effect. I know a lot of stuff, and the more mm-hmm. I learn, the more I think I know. When in reality, well, the more I learn, it just shows me Plus. how little I do know. So exactly. I think it's wonderful. And it's very, very yeah. good for your, your ego as well. <laughs> and no, I'm not going to dive into business applications. All right. Even though apparently that's where the money is. <laughs> so um, again, we're running out of time. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if Simon's here or not. That does not mean that it's not Simon's fault. Uh, I'm sure it's Simon's fault regardless. Somehow. Yes. Um, we're going to data mines in uh, October. Um, we've, can, yes. we've we've talked about this previously. We're going to do both uh, pre-cons and uh, sessions. And you're also going for the first time to the, the past data summits. Yes. That will be in November. So yes. that will Seattle be exciting. November sucks. Yeah, but I come from Finland, so I don't know if it's actually going to be much of a difference. So <laughs> I think it's just going to be like being at home. <laughs> well, that's that's true. I've I've, yeah. I've actually been to Seattle uh, one of the two days that year when it was sunny. Uh, it was weird because people were standing in the street and looking up at the sky and, and going, what is that thing? And that <laughs> thing was the sun. So, yeah. Yes, it can be very surprising to see the sun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cool yeah but i'm um, so much looking forward to hearing your your opinions on uh, on on the data summits uh, i'm not going to be able to yeah. go this year uh, maybe maybe next year if there's uh, something similar um we're just about done soon it is monday and monday is going to be the third of october 
And that means that I will be able to reveal ah. where I am starting. <laughs> I was like, it's not Monday yet. No, <laughs> what are you no, talking no. About? In almost a week, it's going to be October, and that means that I, I get to start yes. working, and I'm I'm super super excited to to do that. And um, since this will be the last episode where I am not working for that company, so yeah, I will. Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm sure. Very exciting. Most, yes, most people will recognize the company. I'll just say that, and and maybe this is the worst kept secret in human history, but we'll see. <laughs> there will be an announcement made on October the third. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Did I forget something? Probably. Do you want to add something? No, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's been wonderful as always. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at